Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I have a message for you this morning that as we've been navigating through this time as a church, there's really been a clear sense that God is presenting us with an opportunity in the midst of this difficult season. And I believe it's an opportunity individually and as a church to realign ourselves with what really matters. As we were discussing this as leaders in the pulpit team, we were reminded of the passage in Ephesians 5 that says to redeem the time because the days are evil, as the King James puts it. So there was a sense that this is what the Spirit is telling us right now. These are definitely evil days that we're all experiencing. And so the question is, how do we redeem them? What is the opportunity in the Spirit for us right now? And so the title of this message is Carpe Diem, which is the Latin motto meaning seize the day. And I believe this passage in Ephesians 5 has three things to speak to us about seizing this day. The Lord's telling us to wake up, to pay attention, and to invest wisely. So let's read from Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to start from midway in verse 14. It says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, or redeeming the time, because the days are evil. So the first thing we see here is quite literally a wake-up call. And to get the force of this, we need to see a little bit of the context. Paul the Apostle was writing this letter from prison to a group of churches in and around the city of Ephesus, which today is in modern Turkey. And these were largely believers from a non-Jewish background. And what we get in this letter is probably the most awe-inspiring vision of God's ultimate plan of salvation. And it's this, that the church, which is a people, not a building, would become the dwelling place of God, a living temple built to carry his presence on the earth. And it's made up of people from all different nations. So when Jesus walked on the earth, he said he was the new and better temple, the dwelling place of God in bodily form. He was the meeting point between heaven and earth. And now, guess what? The church, his body, carries that same identity to be the meeting place of heaven and earth. That is our identity. And so if you want to know who you are as a Christian, if you want to know your grand purpose and, and, and meaning as a Christian, Ephesians is what you need to read. This letter is like the manifesto of the church. It's the manifesto of a Christian's purpose. This is who we are. This is who we're called to be. So if all that's true, why does Paul say, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead? I mean, he's talking to Christians after all. Hasn't he just said that we've been raised from dead in Christ? Yes. But here's the sobering thing, church, Christian, even so, we can be completely asleep. 
And the thing about sleep is that you don't know when you're in it. And not only that, when you're asleep, the last thing you would want is to be woken up. And what we usually do is prepare everything around us to make sure that nothing will disturb our sleep. We design the perfect environment to make sure that we stay safe and comfortable in our sleep until we're good and ready to wake up. What I believe we're experiencing right now is a wake-up call. And it makes me think, what's the difference between being awake and being asleep? I think, at the very least, it involves two things. Presence and awareness. When you're asleep, you're there, your body's there. You might even be able to do some of the things that people do when they're awake, like walk and talk. In fact, Selena even prays in tongues in her sleep. But even though you're there, you're not present. Your mind and heart are somewhere else. And so that leads to the second difference, which is awareness. Sleep is basically unconsciousness. You're not conscious or aware of what's happening around you. You're in your own little self-contained world. When you're awake, you're aware of reality. You're aware of yourself, of what needs to be done. You can see and understand and engage with the things around you. You can fill out, you can fulfill your purpose. And so what this is talking about is that it's possible for a Christian and for a church to be asleep, which is a picture of death. Now, that might seem like, like harsh language, but it's actually the mercy of God to wake us up. And we need waking up time after time. But there's nothing more inconvenient than being woken up. Sometimes God has to rip the covers off. And I am not a morning person. You just need to ask Selena. So we need to ask, what might be lulling us to sleep as the church today? What should this time wake us up out of? Now brace yourself because I don't want to disturb your sleep, <laughs> but I believe this time is to awaken us to how our identity and calling as Christians is completely different than the surrounding culture. Your Christianity and your culture are not one and the same thing, and I don't care what country you come from or what's written on its money. It's not who... Now I'm getting close to the, to the mark, huh? I, <laughs> it's not the obvious sinful things. It's the cultural values that we take for granted, that we simply go along with. But the problem is, if we take them for granted, we're actually blind to them. We don't see them. And the problem is that Ephesians tells us that to be in Christ is to go from being darkness to being light. It's not just getting slightly fixed up and scrubbed up. It, it's stepping into a completely different realm. And so that's why it says have nothing to do with the, uh, the unfruitful works of darkness. Shine the light of Christ into the things that we're blind to. And so the disease that I think we're blind to and that I'm praying this season wakes us up from is not just a form of influenza, it's what some people have called affluenza. I remember a number of years ago, Selena and I were uh, visiting the U.S. and, and she asked me, in, in Europe, when people leave the house, they do their hair, they put nice clothes on, they take pride in their appearance. I don't understand why when we go to the store here, I see so many people in sweatpants and 
oversized shirts and flip-flops and hairnets. And <laughs> I said, Selena, if you want to understand America, you got to understand two things, comfort and convenience. And I think even though we hear so much about the danger of liberalism and secularism, I think far more insidious is the danger of middle-class consumerism within the church. And it's not that I'm not thoroughly middle-class, but if you think about the values of middle-class consumerism, it's all built around designing a life of comfort, of convenience, of safety and security. It's quite literally about maintaining the status quo. It's a life centered around minimizing risk and maximizing comfort. And if that's the functional goal of your life, you need to know you're living for a very different kingdom than the kingdom of God. And these are values that creep in. But do any of those things describe the life of Christ and his, his kingdom? Faith inherently involves risk. And not just as an occasional thing, but as a lifestyle of trusting God. You can't trust God without risking something on him. And so the values of consumerism that our whole economy is based on are actually opposed to God's kingdom. Jesus said, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Consumerism is thoroughly pagan. And it's far more likely to deceive you as a Christian in, in the Western world than outright, outright atheism often is. Why do you think Jesus warns us so much about money? And so what happens when the church begins to blindly embody those cultural values and it shapes itself around comfort and convenience and safety and security? Well, when you think about it, when you feel comfortable and safe and secure, that's when you drift off to sleep and you cease to be any use in the real world. And so I believe that this time is removing the things, the comforts, the, the sense of security that we often take for granted. And it's revealing them for what they really are. The church is not to be middle class. It's not to be consumeristic. If we're to be present and aware as the church, if we're to be awake, we need to see that we do not run after those things. If you make them your life's goal, if that's what you're really pursuing with a bit of Jesus on the side, as fire insurance, it's all going to crumble. And the worst thing about consumerism, and the reason I think the enemy loves it, is that it robs you of your purpose and destiny in God. It stunts the growth of the church. Romans 8.29 says that the, our purpose, the thing that God is shaping everything towards, is that we would be conformed to the image of his son so that we would, he would be the firstborn among many brothers. The reason he saved us is to make us his kids, brothers and sisters of Jesus, growing up into the full maturity of who we are in him. That's what Ephesians 4, the, the preceding chapter, is all about. It says that we should grow up in everything into him. But the tragedy of consumerism in the church is that it keeps us in spiritual infancy. It keeps us in a place of saying, feed me, entertain me. Now, there's lots of reasons for this. There's lots of effects that we could get into. But suffice it to say that I believe the Lord is 
using this time, this experience to tell us to wake up. You are different and you are living for something different. So all that brings us to the second thing that we need to seize in this moment, which is to pay attention. The passage says that the result of waking up and rising up is that Christ will shine on you. Now, when the light of Christ shines on us, what does it show? What does it reveal? Paul says, pay close attention to how you walk. In other words, to the real substance of your life. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think to really examine ourselves is not to stop at what we'd prefer to believe or what we're capable of in our best moments, but it's to pay attention to our actual character. We are apt to excuse ourselves in times of weakness. We say, oh, you know, it just wasn't me or, or um, I just wasn't myself. And I kind of want to ask, well, who was it then? You learn more about your real character, not at your best moments, but when you're caught off guard. And honestly, I think the Lord showed me this today as I dealt with some pretty severe technical difficulties in recording this. But here's my obligatory C.S. Lewis quote of the day. He says, if you want to find rats in the cellar, the best way to find them is to go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. And so when you're a Christian, you're a new creation, you're, you're, you're born again in Christ, and that happens in an instance. It's outside of your control. But character takes a lifetime to build. And character is what we mainly do automatically, routinely. It's what we do without thinking. It's shaped in us by our habits. And every single person is not just a human being, but a human becoming. We're becoming somebody. And the thing with the life of Christ, the character of Christ, is that it doesn't happen to you. You have to build the habits of his life into yours. And this is what discipleship is all about. It's being shaped into the character of Christ by living out the disciplines that shaped his life. Now, a lot of times we look at the things he said, where he says, love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And we say, that's nice, Jesus, but it doesn't work down here. That's not the way life really is in the real world. And if you've ever seriously tried to do those things, if you've ever seriously tried to live it out with all your effort, you find that you, you can't. G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And so we either let ourselves off the hook and we say it doesn't apply to us, or what we do is we spiritualize it and we say we're only meant to do these things in our hearts. But what if we're just completely misunderstanding the process? We think that Jesus is telling us to turn up on game day and just play like Michael Jordan. And you find out, I can't do it. Now, I know a lot of you, like me, are watching the, the Last Dance documentary series about the Chicago Bulls. And what you see so clearly in that series is that Michael Jordan's ability to play as he did was not simply through turning up on game day and just giving it all he had. It was through the consistency of his daily life, his training day in and day out, the determination, the fixation on the goal that shaped his body so that when day, 
a game day came, he was able to do what he wanted to do. Without the quality of that life behind it, no amount of effort would have produced his skill of playing. And so we need to really examine our walk with God and say, what is my real character? How do I live automatically? And we need to take the time to pay attention to our character and to begin to intend to learn from Jesus. And so this leads us to the last thing, which is to wise up. The passage tells us to look carefully at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now, we've seen that to be a disciple is to be a student of Jesus in the school of life. We're his apprentices. We're learning from him so that we can be like him. And the thing that we so often miss in all this, in the way that Christianity is presented, the gospel is preached a lot of times, is that the reason for doing this is not just that it's the right thing to do. You know, obey God or he'll be angry with you. It's not just that following Jesus is the right thing to do. It's actually the smart thing to do. In fact, I would say the reason that it's right is because it's the smart thing to do. And here's the thing. If I were to ask you, who's the smartest person in history? I'd probably get answers like Albert Einstein, Stephen Hawking, Jack Robleski. But how many of our minds would automatically jump to Jesus in response to that question? See, we're conditioned to think of Jesus as a good man. We're not conditioned to think of Jesus as smart. But if Jesus was who he says he was, he wasn't only good and kind, he was brilliant. So why don't we bring our relationships to him, our finances, our health, you know, the things that we really care about in everyday life? Jesus was the wisest person who's ever lived. Now, the virtue of wisdom is extremely important in Scripture. It's one of the things that we're told to value above all else. And Paul says that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Now, wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom, you could say, is the skill of living. The world is, is more than ever full of knowledge. There's science and philosophy and psychology and mathematics, and everything's more accessible than ever uh, uh, over the internet. But the skill of knowing how to best apply all our knowledge to acquire the good life is much harder to get. Somebody said that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. How do we apply the knowledge to life so that we can actually make the best use of what's really valuable? The word that it translates here as to make the best use of more, more literally is to redeem. It was, it was a marketplace word that meant to absolutely uh, shrewdly use your money uh, uh, to, to get the best out of it. It makes me think, why do we use the language of money when it comes to time? Because time isn't just something we use, it's something that we spend. That's because time is a resource, just like money and goods, and it's a limited resource. It's the most valuable resource we have because there's always more money out there, but time can't be made. Once it's spent, it's gone. And so Greek had two words for, for time. It had chronos and kairos. And kairos referred to a, a window of opportunity, a season, a moment. Here one minute and gone the next. And, and so the Bible's saying that the moment 
you're in is a kairos moment. It's a moment of opportunity. God's put you in this specific place for a specific opportunity. And so how should you invest your most valuable asset of time? Well, there's a million things in the marketplace of our lives crying out, crying out for us to spend our time on them. But one of the gifts of adversity, of a time like we're going through right now, is that it allows you to see what's truly important and what's not. And we need to differentiate between the urgent and the important. Urgent means something that demands immediate attention. Those are the, those are the tasks that shout now. They, they put us in a reactive mode where we're acting defensively, we're, we're acting negatively, uh, hurriedly. We got kind of a, t a tunnel vision focus. But important means something that contributes to our long-term mission, our values and health. And when we focus on things in that way, we respond calmly and openly. Now, some important things are also urgent, but typically they're not. Every urgent thing will tell you it's important, but very seldom are they. It's so easy to become a slave to the urgent. So I'd encourage you as an exercise uh, in, in the following days to write down the 10 things that you feel draw most of your time and take a moment to decide whether they're urgent or important. And so if we want to figure out how to best use our opportune time, we need to ask, what is the most valuable thing? Now, I want to end by looking at how Jesus answered that question. In Matthew 22, a lawyer came up to Jesus and asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the law, you have to remember, was God's wise instruction of how to live a life of blessing. In other words, the law is God's instruction on what is valuable and what to do in life. And Jesus answered famously, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love people. Jesus says that's what it's all about. These are the most important things in life because they're the most valuable things in life. Now, it's obvious that God is the most important thing because he created everything. He loves us. He's the, the source of life and goodness. But after God, people are the most important thing in the universe. They're loved and valued by God, and people are everlasting. So investing in these relationships is always the best use of our kairos time, of our opportune moment. Because wherever we are, however long we're there for, it's worth it to invest in relationships. Don't just be a slave to the urgent. Be a servant of the important. That's how you redeem the time. So I believe that we're in a unique moment in our lifetimes where there's an opportunity to wake up, to pay attention, and to begin to invest wisely. And so I pray that for you, that this season would, would be a season where God wakes you up out of slumber, that where God wakes uh, our church, out of any slumber that we might be in, where he wakes up the church with, with a capital C out of its slumber, 
where more in the body of Christ would begin to pay attention to their character, to, to discipling themselves, to apprenticing themselves to Jesus, the master of life, the one who will teach you how to get the most out of what's really valuable and that we begin to invest wisely. Because we're all becoming someone. And who would you rather become like than Jesus? Jesus, who never had any anxiety, who never worried about money or fame or fortune or, or, or significance. He was completely whole in himself. He was completely confident in his identity. And he's, he fulfilled his purpose. And he influenced all of history. And guess what? He wasn't rich. He wasn't famous in his lifetime. He didn't even have a family. He never had a girlfriend. And yet, you look at Jesus as the most successful life ever lived. And it shows you the true and lasting value of what he pursued. So, there may be some of us here that are tuning in that are listening and you haven't yet made that decision to learn from Jesus, to apprentice yourself to him, to say, Jesus, you really know how to live successfully. And I am going to submit myself to you to learn how to become the kind of person that you are. And so that's a journey that you can start today. You can come to Jesus right now and say, I want to be your student. And so if that's you, I want to lead you in a, a just a short prayer. It's just expressing your heart to Jesus that you want to follow him today. So if that's you, you can repeat uh, these words after me and there's, there's nothing magical about them. It's just a commitment that if you commit yourself to it in truth is going to transform your life. So why don't we pray these words together? Jesus, I am so sorry for how I've led my life so unwisely, how I've turned away from you and ignored you. Please forgive me for my sin. Thank you that you came to model a successful life, the perfect life that I should have lived. And you died on the cross to take the consequence of the life I have lived. Thank you that I'm forgiven because you died for me. Thank you that you rose again and that you offered me the opportunity to have new life in you. Jesus, today, I want to become your student. I want to learn from you so that I can become like you. Please give me your Holy Spirit. Make me a new person. And I commit myself to you from now on. Amen. So if you prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time, or maybe you prayed it with a real commitment, we want to walk with you in that. It's not a road to be walked alone. This is a school that we're all enrolled in together with Jesus. And so if that's you, I'd like you to stay tuned to the very end of this broadcast because there's some information uh, after my message now uh, of, of what 
your next steps can be so that you can make the most of this opportunity. So thank you for joining me today. And I'm going to end with a prayer. Father God, thank you that even in the midst of such a difficult, trying time where we're beset with either boredom or, or suffering, um, but in any case, we're going through a lot of discomfort and inconvenience. Lord, I thank you that even in the midst of that, you have an opportunity for us. You're calling us to wake up. You're calling us to pay attention to our character. And you're calling us to live in wisdom, to invest our lives in the things that really matter. Lord, thank you for that opportunity. And I pray that we would respond to it individually in our families and in this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 Podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.